thank you for this mighty word. We thank you for including this very, well, the book as a whole of the Psalms, and this psalm in particular, within your canon, within your word that has been preserved and presented to us. These words that we've just read have been for countless generations of your people and for us included, a way of expressing the depth of our own sin, of our own guilt before you, and the hope that we have, a hope made even clearer for us and real, not in burnt offerings anymore, but in the one offering, the great offering of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you then for a passage like this, that while exposing the depth of our rebellion against you carries us up to the great hope that we have of renewal and of restoration in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, enable us today to think well through these things. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to know I, I don't feel as bad as my voice currently sounds. So I, I know it sounds uh, really bad, and I don't think I've ever had a sermon with tea before. But be that as it may, first time. Uh, so let's look at this. I titled the sermon today, Our Soul Focus. And the, uh, the title is, of course, a little bit of a play on words from the word soul, uh, about which we'll be speaking, S-O-U-L. And then the word soul, S-O-L-E, the singularity of the focus that I would like us to have in this series on the Psalms. I want us to, for the next several months together, taking us all the way through May, to focus on our souls. And I don't think that there is a more reliable guide for us to take us through a study of our souls than the book of Psalms as we walk along this journey with the book. <coughs> the Psalms provide us with the language and direction that we need for the exploration of our souls. We'll be asking questions, is it well with my soul? We sing the hymn and we sing it's well with my soul. Well, is it really well with my soul? What if in exploring my soul, I find my soul to be, instead of well, I find my soul to be bereft, I find it to be neglected or adrift? We'll ask a question like, am I finding, are you finding rest for your soul? Remember, that was the promise of Jesus, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, I'm humble and gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. Well, are we finding soul rest? And even our little motto verse for our church from Jeremiah 6.16 talks about walking in the ancient paths where the good way is. And if we walk in those ancient paths, what we will find is rest for our souls. But the Psalms allow us to ask a question, and the question is this, what if we find our souls to be restless? What if instead of a restful soul, we find our souls to be full of anxiety, of fears, of troubles, and of doubts? What if we find our, our souls, instead of being filled up, they're hungry and they're needy, or our souls are mourning? What then? What do we do then? 
Well, the Psalms help us with questions exactly like that. They are painfully honest. What, what they do for us is they, they give us a way to take the naked soul and bring it before God. And we take that soul before God whether we find our souls to be in the depths of despair with Joseph in the depths of a pit, with Jonah in the belly of a fish, with our Lord on the cross, or whether we find our souls to be soaring like eagles. That was kind of the ending point of the call to worship this morning. I will bless the Lord, all my soul, and your youth is renewed like the eagles. In any case, the Psalms invite us, whether it's despairing or soaring with joy, to bring our souls before God. Today, what I'd like to do in the sermon is to kind of map out the next couple of months for us, to kind of show us where we are going. So I read for us Psalm 51. Now, that said, I I'm not going to do today a full exposition of this great psalm. I chose it because of its familiarity to us. And, and in its familiarity, my hope is that uh, we've heard this psalm a lot, we love this psalm, and we can make some comments about this psalm that don't involve an entire exegesis of everything that's going on in here. So forgive me for, for not going through every part of this wonderful psalm that is before us. That said, Here's what I want us to do uh, today and, and looking forward to the next couple months. I want us to talk today about the life of the interior, the life of the exterior, and what are our goals and the obstacles to those goals over the next few months. So let's begin then with the life of the interior. We are psychosomatic beings, body-soul, soul-body beings, beings with an interior life and an exterior life. And those two things, the body and the soul, are wonderfully and inextricably linked together. Now, having made that statement right there, let me give an exception to that statement. At our death, those who are in the Lord, their bodies will remain in the grave while the soul goes to be in the presence of the Lord while we await the resurrection of the bodies. That is a temporary state, and it is not as good as a united, linked together soul and body. There is that one period in which soul and body will be separated from one another. For now, we are united together. For all eternity, we will be united together, body and soul. And there are a variety of words and phrases that are used throughout Scripture to describe the interior life. And one of the most frequent of those that is used is the word soul, and that's going to be the primary word that I use when we're talking about this in the sermons and as we look at the Psalms. Now, ironically, and I knew this when I chose Psalm 51, but, but good for us because it illustrates the point, Psalm 51 doesn't include the word soul. So of all the psalms I could have chosen, many of which have the word soul, this one doesn't have it. But it has words in it that are equal and in terms of their familiarity to us and what they are describing, namely spirit, 
and heart. So just look at two of the verses here. Again, these are familiar to us. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The heart and the spirit here are within. They are referring to the interior life. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. Or verse 6 says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And then as it continues on, teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Different words used to describe the same thing. When we look at David in this psalm, and we assume the context of this psalm to be as it is written in your Bibles prior to the psalm itself, the sin that David committed that caused him in particular to pen this psalm for us is, of course, an external sin. It's an exterior sin dealing with Uriah and then Bathsheba. He did something with his body, namely murder and adultery. But what David recognizes is that as a result of what he has done in his exterior, his external life, he doesn't merely need a course in behavioral modification to say to him, listen, David, this is something you've done. You shouldn't do things like this. Let's, let's set up some markers in your life so that when you find yourself in a similar situation next time, you won't react in exactly the same way. Behavioral modification. He doesn't need only external washing or physical sacrifices. What David is looking for in this psalm as a result of his sin is interior renewal. He's looking for not just external washing, but internal cleansing. Because what he recognizes is that his soul is guilty before God. It's not just his body that has done something wrong, but his soul as well. Now, over the course of this series, I'm not going to spend any time trying to set up a distinction between the soul, the spirit, the heart, the inmost being, or however we want to phrase it. Most of the time in Scripture, they are simply parallels that are describing the interior life and the interior world. If there are times in which they seem to be used in a nuanced way uh, within the Psalms, I'll point that out. But generally speaking, they're just parallels with one another. So, for example, this is true both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Often I use the benediction at the close of our service from Paul that says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, in that case, though Paul says spirit and soul and body, I don't think we're supposed to look at that and say, wow, what's the difference between the spirit and the soul? I think Paul's just setting up some parallels there. May you in every way be guarded and be kept holy to the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's the case with most of the Psalms as well. So that said, recognizing that we can in fact use these words interchangeably, soul, spirit, heart, the question remains, what are they? What are we talking about when we use any of those terms? 
And the answer is as follows. It is a compilation of things. It is a compilation of, first of all, our thoughts. What do we think about ourselves? What do we think about God? What do we think about the world around us? <coughs> uh, it is our motivations. Why do we do the things we do? Our emotions and our feelings, the affections that we have in our heart, the desires that we have, the loves and reactions that are part of us. These are the things, the elements of the interior life, the elements of the soul that the Psalms invite us to explore. And thus the, the Psalms are, as one author titled the book, a cry of the soul. Calvin put it this way, that the Psalms form an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And I like that. I, I like that way of thinking about it. We're taking, as we look at the soul and the Psalms, an anatomy lesson from the psalmist. Teach me about my soul. Again, Calvin writes, the psalmists lay open their inmost thoughts and affections, and thus they call, or rather draw, each of us to an examination of himself in particular. In other words, David's point isn't simply that we, we, we've got a copy of something that he wrote in his diary here, and we get a little insight now. Rather, his point even in writing this is so that others can map out their soul as well as we look at his struggle of soul. He opens his own heart to us so that we can do that. So, in both content, what is written in the Psalms themselves, and in the very form of the Psalms, which is to say the, the Psalms are given to us in a different type of form, it's verse, it's poetry, it's music and song, they call us to look at our souls, to familiarize ourselves with our own soul, to become acquainted with our soul and with our interior life before God. Not just Psalm 51 as an example. David does, just doesn't consider his life in a vacuum. He doesn't just sit down and quietly say somewhere, okay, I need to think about who I am and, and serve and then give us this introspective thought about who he is. Rather, all the psalmists, as they reflect on their interior life, take that interior life before God and wrestle with who they are with reference to who God is and what God has done. So the interior life, but lest we be too one-sided, let me connect this interior life then to the exterior life. The exterior life, that which we see and hear, that which we speak and do. The Psalms are generally speaking not the product of a cloistered author reflecting on his own soul. Instead, they are situationally motivated. Soul reflection is taking place within the context of a life lived. And this is good news for us. It's good news for us because sometimes 
when we can think of people who are spiritual or people who care a lot about their souls, images can form in our mind of someone who's a mystic, someone who doesn't spend a lot of time in the real world, but spends a lot of time by themselves or isolated someplace else, kind of thinking about things and not really doing, not really engaged in the world. Instead, what we find in the Psalms are people engaged in real situations, people engaged, <laughs> this is, these aren't good, but in murder and adultery, in abandonment, in experiencing loneliness in life, exile, people who are sometimes restored, people who have sometimes seen God provide for them in wonderful and, ex <coughs> and extraordinary ways. And that's good because you too are people who are engaged in normal life. Soul reflection, paying attention to your interior life is not reserved for spiritual people set apart in some different way. It is for those of us who experience the world, who are engaged in the real aspects of life. And so it is this exterior life that forces and that shapes the interior reflection. What has happened to me, whether what has happened to me is a good thing or a bad thing, causes me to reflect then on the soul, on what is my soul, how does my soul respond to this before God. Corresponding to that, the interior soul reflection is not viewed as an end in and of itself. So, in other words, this isn't the way it works. It doesn't work whereby a situation takes place, the psalmist then comes aside and says, soul, what do you think about this situation? The soul wrestles with that before God, and then the soul figures out what it thinks, who God is, and you're done. It doesn't stop there. The internal soul reflection, the interior soul examination that takes place by the psalmist, then leads to him to go outward, to seek alignment, if you will, between the words of his mouth, the actions of his life, and the meditations of his heart, the reflection of his soul. So, so the psalmist isn't concerned with one instead of the other, or to necessarily even prioritize and say, the only thing that matters is my soul. But rather, he wants integrity between soul and life, between interior and exterior. He wants there to be integrity between what I do and who I am. That's the kind of examination that the psalmist does. That's what they're looking for to come out of their internal soul wrestling. And Psalm 51 is a beautiful example of that. And, and again, some of this is familiar to us. So consider, first of all, the, the end of the psalm here. If you look at the end of the psalm, especially verse 16, which is well known to us, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a, and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. One could mistakenly think from those two verses in Scripture that sacrifices and offerings are somehow irrelevant to God 
that they don't make any difference. Really, what matters is the state of your heart. And you can imagine people saying that. I don't have to do these things that other people say I should do. I don't have to go to church as long as my soul is right. That's all that matters. But verses 18 and 19 make it clear that that's not the case. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings that go on from there. So in other words, if you look at the, the, the 16 and 17 portion of this, you might be tempted to say burnt offerings don't matter to God at all. The exterior life doesn't ma matter to God. It's the interior life that matters to God. But it's not the case. In fact, what the final verses teach us is that God not only cares about the well-being of Jerusalem, the building up of the walls of Jerusalem, and he doesn't only care about burnt offerings, he actually takes pleasure in them. He takes pleasure in the building up of Jerusalem. He delights in burnt offerings as long as the soul and the life, the thing, have integrity with one another, as long as they connect to one another. Or let me back it up to the uh, verses 12 and 13 couplet uh, to give another example of this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the desire of David for internal renewal, for the restoration of his soul before God. And then verse 13 comes in to say, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. As a result of the restoration of the interior through the work of God, something will take place. And the thing that David longs to take place is the instruction of sinners. Other people will turn to you if you restore to me joy to my soul. Now think about this for just a moment. We've got this psalm before us, and I venture to say that for many of us, this psalm is in the top five of psalms that we love and psalms that we have prayed because we feel it so deeply. So exactly what David was hoping for took place. The restoration of his soul by God before God allowed him to pen this psalm in such a way that now we, sinners, are being instructed by exactly the words that he said, and we're following his example of repentance. Let me just give one more uh, couplet here, and that's verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. This is the exact same pattern once again, wherein praise, an opened mouth, is the external manifestation of a soul that is restored to God. And I trust the point is clear. We are going to spend the next few months looking at the Psalms and focusing on our souls before God. But we should not view that as somehow detached from, an alternative to, or irrelevant to 
a life of love and service expressed to other people or to our God himself. Instead, focus on the soul is essential to the exterior life because without soul focus, the reality reality is that the exterior life, the things that we do, will be eviscerated. They'll be utterly gutted. Hear the words of our Lord. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. These are words that I trust none of us want to be heard, none of us want to hear about ourselves. We don't want Jesus to say to us, Jesus is there quoting Isaiah, but we don't want him to say about Christ the King Presbyterian Church, these people honor me with their lips. Oh, they're really good. They come together, they sing songs real loud, they say confessions together, they read the Psalms together, while their hearts are far away from me. And, and we dare not think that's not possible. The testimony of Scripture, the testimony of our Lord is that it surely is possible. It surely is dangerous for us to be good at speaking, all right at doing, and lousy at the heart. The exterior life will grow cold. It will be perfunctory. It'll turn into just drudgery, and it will eventually evaporate apart from a focus on the soul. So then what are our goals? And then the obstacles over the next few months. Well, the goals, I hope, are clear. I, I want to allow the Psalms and the psalmists to take us on a tour of our souls to teach us how we are to commune with our souls, to provide us with the language that we can use, the patterns that we can use to care for our souls, to explore them, to recognize, to express the longings, the feelings, the desires, whether good or bad, that exists within our soul. And secondly, in so doing, my hope would be, in the same way that this appears to be David's very hope in this psalm, that we would experience renewal. There are some great things that David asks of the Lord with reference to his soul here. Create, restore, renew. Those are incredibly powerful words when applied to a person's soul as it is before God. And I hope then that the Lord will use a series like this to help us to renew our first love. And my final goal is this, the animation or vivification, or if you prefer, the reanimation and revivification of our words and our works. None of us want our worship or our witness to the community that is around us. We don't want our service 
We don't want our Bible studies or our Sunday schools or our quiet times. None of us want those things to be rote, to be mechanical, to be things that we do just because we think we ought to do those things. Eventually, we ourselves, we will see through it. Our neighbors will sniff it out. Your kids will sniff it out. If you're just going through the motions, they'll know it. And so what we're hoping for then is spiritual revitalization that restores, I want to say our sense of mission as a church, but not just our sense of mission, but our actual doing of the mission so that we do it from hearts that are full of joy, that are naked in soul before God. But there will be giant, giant obstacles in this process. We are not used to this. This is the first obstacle. We're just not used to doing something like this. We prefer activity to reflection. We prefer consideration and doing of something exterior instead of the interior. Uh, I, I, I appreciated, Rex, the, the Spurgeon analogy there of shaving. Shaving's easy to do, and, and maybe we shave more than we pray. Maybe we shave more than we spend attention to our very souls. We talk about working out. Uh, I don't know if you work out, but anybody who works out will say the same thing. It's not easy to work out, right? It takes time. Ah, I can't find the time to work out. It's so expensive to find a gym. My house is not set up. My schedule doesn't work. And if everything else fails, just plain working out is hard. And once you start working out, it doesn't get easier because you get older. And then it hurts more. Working out is hard. Working in is harder. Secondly, the soul is complex. Who can understand it, says Jeremiah. We like problems we can solve. And the soul is a riddle within a riddle. Romans 7, it keeps asking itself, why am I doing what I am doing? And it gets puzzled over those things. Or why do I go back to the very things I hate? The soul is complex. Number three, the soul is ugly. When I explore the soul, I am forced to admit things about myself that I would rather not admit. I'd rather not acknowledge them, I'd rather suppress them, or I'd at least rather ignore them. I'd rather just pretend that they're not true. They may be true of somebody else, but those things are not true of me. And this is what David is confronting in Psalm 51. He, it's one thing to deal with the exterior sins that he has committed, but what David has to own is that these exterior sins, that of murder and adultery and all of the planning and conniving that went into it, are not merely anomalies, things which took place but really don't reflect his character. 
and I'm indebted to somebody else for this thought. I can't remember who I'm indebted to, so sorry about that. But instead, they are characteristic of his soul. They're a part of him, and that's why he goes back to, I was conceived in iniquity and sin. This isn't just a little blip. I did something when I was out of control. It's really not who I am. That's what every apology of athletes, or etc., are made of right now. That's not really who I am. I said something in the heat of the moment, etc. David takes the opposite tack in his own ref soul reflection. No, no, no. The reality is I'm worse than what you saw. I was born in sin. And what I've done is really a reflection of what's going on in my soul and the desires that exist in my soul. The soul is ugly. Earlier, I mentioned uh, talking about integrity between the exterior and the interior life, but I want to clarify right now what I meant by that. The integrity that exists between the exterior and the interior life that the psalmist seeks is not an integrity based on the fact that he always does the right thing because his soul always wants the right thing. That would be nice, but it doesn't exist. Instead, the integrity that the psalmist seeks is the integrity of being able to say of his own soul, it is broken. It is ugly. I recognize it. And I acknowledge that before the Lord while I still try to do the right thing, while I still try to offer the burnt offerings, while I still try to build up Jerusalem. That's the kind of integrity that we're talking about. Not the kind of integrity that makes your soul all shiny and perfect, and so everything you do flows out of that shiny and perfect soul. An enlightened soul is one which sees its own desperation and weakness and embraces that as its core identity. This is who I am, in and of myself at least. And so when you travel the paths of the soul, you travel back into the heart of darkness. Now, there's a sunshiny way of thinking about a soul journey. You travel into the heart of darkness. So I love the heart of darkness. Um, it's a dark book uh, by Joseph Conrad. And I can't help but read this passage. I've got a note next to this passage in this book that I read this to Christ the King, November 2010. I've got to keep notes so you know how often you're repeating yourself and whether you're doing it intentionally. But I figured 2010 was a long time ago. You've probably forgotten it or you weren't here uh, at that time. So I'm going to read this anyway. So the, the heart of darkness, describing this journey up a river into an ugly situation that is really just a metaphor for a journey up into the heart and into the soul exploring looking out over this river, going up through a, 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 a jungle in Africa, and this stillness of life did not in the least resemble a peace. It was the stillness of an implacable force brooding over an inscrutable intention. It looked at you with a vengeful aspect. In other words, that's, that's what it felt like as you were going up. I got used to it afterwards. I did not see it anymore. He's the captain of the boat. I had no time. I had to keep guessing at the channel. I had to discern, mostly by inspiration, the signs of hidden banks. I watched for sunken stones. I was learning to clap my teeth smartly before my heart flew out. 
when I shaved by a fluke some infernal sly old snag that would have ripped the life out of the tin pot steamboat and drowned all the pilgrims. I had to keep a lookout for the signs of dead wood we cut up in the night for the next day's steaming. When you have to attend to things of that sort, to the mere incidents of the surface, the reality, the reality I tell you fades. The inner truth is hidden, luckily, luckily, but I felt it all the same. I felt often its mysterious stillness watching me at my monkey tricks. Life gets busy. You got to spend a lot of time watching things on the road. You got to spend a lot of time taking the kids to various sporting events or things that they're doing at their schools. You've got stuff to do, and it keeps you busy. And sometimes in the busyness, we don't want to look into the heart of darkness. And yet it's there. It just kind of lingers in our life. And it kind of tells us, in all of your busyness, you're missing something. This is not an easy journey. It's not to look at our own souls. But that's what we want to do. That's what we want to take our tour through the Psalms with that in mind. I've not uh, mentioned Jesus in this sermon. I think I did when I was quoting one time. But I haven't focused on Jesus, and that is not good. And so I conclude with this. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 22, asks, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? I'm going to give you just part of the answer. <coughs> Excuse me. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, a rational soul. Christ suffered for us body and soul. We are, of course, quite used to thinking about Christ suffering for us in his body, but his soul was sorrowful unto death. His soul was troubled. In fact, Isaiah 53, 10 tells us his soul was made an offering for sin. To redeem your soul. The Son of God became body and soul to redeem you, body and soul. Our comfort in life and in death will never be that our, we've got our souls completely figured out. <coughs> we're completely at rest because we completely understand our souls and, oh, by the way, we're perfectly fit. And therefore, we are uh, self-actualized, self-aware, self-fulfilled. Instead, our only comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He guards, renews, forgives, cleanses our souls. He presents our souls to God. He is the lover of our souls. And so, may he, who is the lover of our souls, 
who is the shepherd of our souls, who sent his spirit into our spirit. May he bless us and be a faithful guide to us as we seek to understand our souls before him. Let's pray.